made Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes And. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Today, we have a wonderful show for you. We have two great guests, Afrika Kilimanjaro, and later we'll be bringing in Omar Obregon Cuevas. Afrika is a Greensboro native. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Professional Biology from North Carolina A&T State University and a Master of Public Health from Emory University. Afrika is the managing editor and publisher of the Carolina Peacemaker, a weekly news publication founded by her parents 54 years ago. She comes from a distinguished civil rights activist family here in Greensboro. Under her leadership, the paper has won several awards from the National Newspaper Publishers Association and the North Carolina Press Association. Afrika and I had a chance to get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, We've been on panels before. We both served on the board of directors for the Cone Health Foundation. It's great to have you on our show, Afrika. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Afrika, I am really excited to have you here today. I've been reading about you and your family, and it's such an interesting history that you started the paper back in 1967, and it's been in the family since. So I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to talk to us, and I'm so excited to hear some of your perspectives on what's going on right now. And I thought maybe a good place to start would be to ask you a little bit about your experience in covering the Black Lives Matter movement and how that might be covered a little differently by the Black press as compared to the broader press? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Well, we have to look at Black Lives Matter as, you know, of course, it didn't just begin with George Floyd and his death. You know, there have been uh, lots of cases over the years. We're talking decades ago. And our newspaper, my father, my parents started the newspaper primarily to give voice to the voiceless, as they say, in the sense that issues that we're seeing today that have been brought to light police brutality or excessive force in policing, those types of issues were not traditionally covered in mainstream media back when The Peacemaker was started. So we've been covering stories like this, Black Lives Matter, throughout the decades. I think the phrase may have been coined in recent years, but the folks who are in the Black press, we, you know, we've always known that our lives and the lives of people of color that we know, you know really do matter. And it's important to get that perspective to interview people who are affected by public policies and laws that come from our longstanding uh, institutions that establish them. That's what my father and my mom basically set out to do. You know, you don't really, you know, start out life or go into it thinking, oh, you're going to be a what Cornell West would call a love warrior or to do that type of work. My parents kind of fell, not necessarily fell into it, but, you know, if when you're African-American and you're growing up in the South and you're faced with obstacles where you're not allowed to do certain things, you're not allowed to participate, even though you have the talent and uh, the wherewithal to do certain things or to attend certain universities, some of those opportunities were not provided to my parents. My father was a speech and theater arts and English literature professor at North Carolina A&T State University. My mom is now a retired media specialist librarian, so, you know, books and reading and newspapers and all things literature, you know, those were the things that were around my house. 
also, you know, it wasn't unusual for, you know, for Jesse Jackson to call up my parents and say, hey, I'm coming by, you know, or uh, Julian Bond, or, you know, they knew these people, you know, when you're in it and you're growing up around it, you don't think about it. You don't think about the significance of that until you look back and you see the pictures and it's like, oh my gosh, really? Then it kind of strikes you because other people say, oh, you know, you really have a unique perspective or a unique viewpoint. But getting back to your question, we cover all types of things, but what's happening right now within the black and brown community on top of not just about dealing with things in the criminal justice system or, or law enforcement, we also have this pandemic going on simultaneously. And right now it makes it really tricky to cover protests where you have large gatherings of people. And that public health person that still exists and still lives in my head is very much alive. And I don't reveal this to a lot of people, but I was in med school when my father called me and said, hey, I need some help with the newspaper. And I know you're doing this, but if you don't like this, that's not what you want to do. Come on, because I really need help. I didn't know that he may have had a, a dementia diagnosis at the time. I didn't know that. And I, it wasn't revealed to me until later. I just say that and to let you know that I'm very weary and leery of sending my news writers out in that sphere of coverage. But I'm fortunate enough that most of them are young enough in there and they want to be in that fray. They want to be in the action. They want to cover and they know the importance of it and the significance of it. But the public health girl and the girl who studied virology and bacteriology and all that and knows how respiratory viruses are transmitted and, you know, you don't have to do a whole lot to catch this COVID-19. I am very cognizant of its virulence. But my folks, you know, we're still out there taking pictures and they're still reporting the news. And when they're not out in the field, there's a ton of meetings going on online, forums and things about Black Lives Matter. There are even still gatherings going on. There's one coming up, I think, next week that we will cover that's on Marcus Smith, who died in police custody after being hogtied. That case happened here in Greensboro. And so there's a rally on the two-year anniversary of his death in downtown Greensboro. So we are still covering those types of events and unfortunate occurrences because that's the news and that's what we have always done. And, you know, we don't plan on stopping. It's not just about covering the instantaneous, oh, this happened to a person. At The Peacemaker and at, at a lot of papers that are you know, the Black press, we have to take a deep dive into these issues so that people have an understanding of the roots of it, where they come from, the whole idea of, you know, we talked about criminal justice reform and how the Black Lives Matter movement, basically it's a movement to demand justice and equality in our system of government and law enforcement that unfortunately has historically to Black people been abusive and oppressive and downright racist at many times and in its profiling of Black people and also downright deadly. You know, a lot of people have died. A lot of people, black and white, were not aware of the roots of law enforcement in this country and how it came out of slave patrols in the early part of our history. So at The Peacemaker, we try to do a deep dive in talking about the public policies that allow profiling, racial profiling, and the arrest of African-Americans in certain situations and not for white Americans, that sort of thing, the disproportionality of that. We talk about that in a lot of the coverage that we do, whether it's in a commentary or feature, you know, just to try to break down and for people to understand that, you know, this is not new, but it's high time that we do with what allows these things to fester, what allows them to proliferate in our society. I was thinking about how 
the Carolina Peacemaker is part of a very rich tradition, which you've alluded to. Some of the great black newspapers of our country, from the Amsterdam News, the Chicago Defender, that have played a critical role of being on the vanguard of American democracy by raising some of these foundational issues of justice and democracy. And I was thinking as you were speaking about, you know, you also wear this hat as a trained biologist and public health person, that the mental health, the physical health, the the issue of sustaining oneself, both personally, but also in terms of the Black community as a whole, which we know the Black community is not this homogenous thing. It's a multi-dimensional, multi-class, regional distinction. If you don't mind talking a little bit about how have you sustained yourself emotionally and, and such Throughout this, and you've been doing this for a long time, as you said, that you know the Carolina Peacemaker has been covering these acts of police brutality and violence towards Black people for decades, literally. Tell us a little bit how you do that at a personal level and also in terms of the Black community as a whole, if you will. I tend to look at the small steps of progress that have occurred you know, throughout my lifetime when my father was doing this. You know, I'd be sitting on the other side of his desk watching him write an editorial longhand and he'd have a stack of letters in front of him from people who have been incarcerated, wanting either him or someone at the newspaper to help adjudicate or find someone to help these people who are in jail have their cases either reheard or reassessed in some shape or form. And I just remember he had, he kept a box that had all these letters in them. And today I have a box with similar letters from people who, you know, they're having some type of legal issue or trouble. I'm not a, a trained attorney. But at the same time, if I can't understand what their situation is, I I know how to pass that on to someone at the law school or something of that sort to help out. I think I sustain myself. um, It helps to surround yourself with like-minded people. And and sometimes folks say that's not always good because you wind up being in a bubble. But I don't necessarily think that's true for being in a bubble for me, because as an African-American woman in the South, in Greensboro, my circle, if I stayed in a bubble, it'd be very small, you know. And so you have to go out into the mainstream world and deal with people out there. But I talk to professors, uh, people who are dealing with these issues, who are in community organizations that deal with issues of what's going on right now with Black Lives Matter or people at the NAACP or the National Action Network. You know, and it's not just here in Greensboro, but up in Washington, D.C. And it helps me to get a sense that I'm not alone out here because there have been times where, you know, where I did a series a long time ago on gerrymandering and how gerrymandering was not a good thing. And for a while, I felt like I was alone until, you know, you start reading articles that are being published by other journalists or other African-American print media or any any media, you know, and, and you get a sense that, hey, this is not just happening here in Greensboro. It's happening all over the place. So now the question is, what do we do? about it? Or how do I get the message out? You need to pay attention to this because you could have a 40 plus percent population of Black folks and maybe 28 percent are registered to vote. And you think that you have a congressional seat on lock, but you don't because it's been gerrymandered so bad that you can have a majority in this district, a Black population, but still have someone representing you that doesn't represent the positions of the majority of the people who live in that community. It's that sort of thing. So 
things can get tricky. You have to talk to folks. You know, that's the one thing I like about journalism is that you can't sit at a desk. The news does not happen in my office. And I always tell from interns to young writers, you know, you can sit here and talk to me all day, but the news is not in my office. It's out there. It's at your city council meeting, your county commissioner's meeting, your church socials, your cotillions, your Jabberwock. You know, we got seven colleges right here in Greensboro. I mean, to me, those are little cities unto themselves. And there's so much happening. The news is always overabundant. That's a good thing. The issue with print media is, you know, advertising and keeping afloat. And so in addition to reporting the news, I still have to think about, okay, I have a staff that has to be paid. We're in a pandemic. This is a business. And folks need to realize, you know, we are not a free paper. We run by on subscriptions and advertising. And that's the, basically the lifeblood of any print media. The lucky thing about having a Carolina peacemaker here in Greensboro, you know, is that we are here and we've been here long enough where hopefully I think that there is a trust level there where they know and I hear a voice in the back of my head that tells me, you know, if you got to give the story to people straight, don't candy cut, just give it to them straight and give them the facts. And I think so much what we value about newspaper writing and what we worry about losing as newspapers struggle in the United States is that ability to share information that is curated and well-researched and provided to the public so they can make informed decisions. And at the same time, I'm thinking about how those facts are talked about as if there is one set of facts. But I like what you said earlier about this importance of giving voice to voiceless and providing perspective. And I imagine that that's part of what you're doing, too, is it's not like there's ever just one set of facts. There's a lot of information and we're selectively choosing what to report on. So do you think that part of your job is also to think about which voices you're lifting up? You try to get all sides to a story. That's what you hope to get. If it's an issue that tends to be political, sometimes the person that is trying to do something that I would consider or most people would consider harmful to the African-American community, they don't want to really be interviewed. That's a sign. If they don't want to comment, it's a, it's a little suspicious. Yeah, yeah. But you give them an opportunity to say something, but a lot of times they won't call you back. You can call them three or four times and ask them, why did you support this particular bill? You know, why did you support not allowing law enforcement camera footage to be seen by the general public? Why did you put forth that particular bill when cameras are supposed to make everybody honest? When you don't get a call back, you're on to something. The silence says more than the answer a lot of times than what you would get, right? I always say it's always eventful. There's always something going or somebody doing something. I could go to an event and it'll be four or five people come to me and say, hey, you know, this is happening. Or, you know, this person did this. You need to check on this. And sometimes it can be overwhelming. I don't have a deep bench of people. I try to utilize student interns that are interested, freelancers. I do have a couple of writers who are steady with me. I have a state writer who, who lives in Cary and he covers state politics, state news for me. It's a different landscape because a lot of the newspapers that you would consider local now or would have considered local rather have been bought up by conglomerates that own 90 other newspapers across the country and the Weather Channel and this and that. We are still an independent company and that's the business side. That's where you get into the big boys, the big conglomerates that have the bandwidth to put out, you think it's okay to put out crazy news. 
And you sure can't do what internet is doing. There are liability laws that have not evolved to include the Facebooks, the Instagrams. It's like the wild, wild west, which is why you're seeing political ads where at the end, you know, if it's on TV, people have to say paid for or approved. I approve this message or paid for by the whatever the committee to elect Joe Crabtree or whatever it is, you know. You know, you have to put that in also in a print ad, but, you know, on Facebook, you don't have to do a lot of that stuff. Their laws are, are have not caught up to the technology. The technology has gone way beyond what our laws are on the books, which is how you get also the Russian box and the fake news and all that. If it's fake, it is not news. So I don't know why they even put news and fake together. It's not news. It's really interesting what you're saying, that there's sort of the laws are not quite there yet. They're catching up. And what has been produced as a result of that is a lot of what seems to many people chaos. I was thinking that we might want to bring in Omar Obregon Cuevas now into the conversation. He's been listening in. Let me introduce Omar Obregon Cuevas. Hails from a Puerto Rican and Mexican family here in Greensboro. And we met when he was a student in Lloyd International Honors College at UNC Greensboro. He was one of our outstanding students, and he actually inspired a new interdisciplinary honors journal called YDG. And he was also active in a project that we worked on together called Community Play All Stars Alliance in the Warnersville community, where we introduced improvisation, performativity, and play as a developmental tools and a set of approaches to empower the local community and spur creativity and learning and development and growth as co-producers of events on a monthly basis. And uh, he was studying philosophy at UNC Greensboro and continued when he went to Emory to continue studying philosophy. And now he is looking to go to medical school, become a family medical practitioner. So welcome. I know you've been listening in, Omar. Uh, but it's great to have you on the Yes and Cafe podcast. Thank you so much for welcoming me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, this conversation has been so interesting. So Omar, do you have any comments or questions for Africa based on what you've been hearing? First, I would just like to say, you know, thank you for continuing the Peacemaker in Greensboro. I think it's a very necessary paper. It's not often that you see such a long running media or newspaper or media company in general run by Black people or specifically one family. And I find it really inspiring that it's continued to be independent and continue to be run within, you know, kept within the family. But I just think it's essential to have people in news who are Black, who are people of color to tell these stories that are not, you know, really told from the perspective of the other in like the New York Times, for example. Omar, why do you say it's important? I mean, it seems like a very basic question, but you know, you're studying philosophy, you philosophize. I think that it's asking these kinds of simple questions about foundational things that can lead to interesting developments. But why is it important to use Africa's words to have the voice of the voiceless heard? I think we just have to understand that like we can think of emancipation, the emancipation from slavery as being a recent event and in one in which even though there was this sort of faux legal emancipation, because you can talk about the prison industrial complex as continuing slavery, even though there was this faux emancipation, you can understand that the thought of Black people and the connection to slavery has not changed fundamentally since then. And even though there have been political and social changes, the way that we kind of construct the thoughts of what it means to be a Black person is not so separate from pre-emancipation. And so in terms of right now in the contemporary day, if when you have 
New York Times writers, when you have, you know, these big conglomerate newspapers, they're all run, you know, by a white board of trustees, by white editors. The interns are white. They go to Ivy League schools. They're a very specific group of people with a very specific culture, which have been for the history of this country, the ruling culture of this country. I just know that it's important for someone from one's own group to speak for that group. Representation can't really be done if you're not of like the same culture, the same background. And so considering the fact that we can think of this construction of blackness and its connection to slavery has not, you know, changed so much in thought in the cultural kind of lived sense that it's so important that we need Black newspapers. We need Black journalists. I just don't think that we can just look at so many examples of journalism done by white journalists or just even non-Black journalists that are not really fairly representing or are giving an adequate voice to the voiceless. That's so true. I'm sitting over here in the amen corner going, yes, 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 he is exactly right. He hit the nail on the head, exactly. I just wanted to say, Omar touched on newsrooms and the composition of newsrooms. You can definitely look at a publication and tell who's making the decisions or who's making the final decision. I'll give you an example. One of our daily papers, when Vice President Joe Biden selected Kamala Harris to be his vice presidential running mate, we came out with a front page, big photo of Kamala Harris that was taken here in Greensboro when she did her campaign stop when she was actually running for president. And it says, it's Kamala, right? It's big picture. And so I said, okay, I know our daily paper here, they're going to do something big. It's going to be something. It's going to come out the next day. And I was looking for it. And so I picked up the paper and I looked and it was not on the front page of the paper. So what they did, they had a second section called National. They made the second section a national section, but they put the story at the top and it says Biden selects vice president. And they put a picture of her that in print journalism, we call it a postage stamp size photo. Okay, literally, it is a postage stamp size photo. And that's it. You know, it's a story there, but it's not the front page, even though it was historic, right? You've got your first person of African descent and Southeast Asian descent woman who is a graduate of a historically black university, the top HBCUs in the country or not universities in the country, who has risen to the highest echelons in her field as a former attorney general of California and a U.S. senator representing California, who's now going to run as vice president on this ticket. You wouldn't know it looking at the majority paper that day. It's a great example. I really like the way that you set this up because in some ways that happens all the time, right? I mean, that's the point that there's a very different emphasis, perspective, if even like coverage of certain critical things. Any other questions, Omar, you might have or comments as we're getting to the end of this particular episode? I find it really interesting that you studied public health and that you are in med school. Something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is just like conceptions of health. My girlfriend's taking a class on when bodies don't matter, and it's very much about health disparities. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, because you have this public health background and you're covering Black life for so long, how would you say, like, how important for you is like a conception of health in Black life, Black social life? It goes hand in hand. What I learned as someone who was in public health and who studied the biological sciences, the basic sciences and that sort of thing, I use it all the time. I use my health background all the time when I am doing journalism. I use statistics and the biostatistics that I learn all the time because people always try to snow you. <laughs> you know, they present you with, with stuff. 
But to get to your point about how you see or you have a better understanding of the health inequities that are going on. And also in this moment in time, when we are dealing with a pandemic and that pandemic is systematically affecting black people and brown people at a very disproportionate rate. So we might make up 20 something percent of a population somewhere, but we're 30 something percent of COVID-19 cases or hospitalizations or whatever it may be. It is affecting us more because of the uh, longstanding conditions that a lot of times are rooted in stress, you know? When you think about our mental health, the mental health of growing up as a youngster and having to come up in a system that discriminates against you, you're not giving the same opportunity to gain access or gain entry into an advanced placement class as a high school student. You're told by a guidance counselor, oh, no, maybe you shouldn't study biology or chemistry. That'd be too hard for you. Why don't you go over here and study something else, you know, whatever that is. I was always taught, and having grown up on a college campus, uh, having gone to AAT for nursery school and kindergarten, that you give people an opportunity to blossom. You're not supposed to cut them off at the knees because they didn't have a certain biology class in high school that you could easily take in college or at a community college or whatever to advance yourself. But there are people who tend to be out there in the world, I call them dream crushers, who block folks' way or try to crush their dreams of achieving. And it takes a toll on you, especially on people of color, mentally. But a lot of times we don't see ourselves in these fields. Yes, there are African-American doctors and nurses and social workers and professors out there. At Emory, a wonderful place. I had the best time ever there. But when there's only one African-American physician there and you only see him on the way out the door after you've already been pummeled to death through four years of med school or whatever it is, and you only see that person on the way out, you you don't see people who share your culture or your sense of culture or your sense of, I represent a unique uh, entity in this world or a body in this world. Um, When you don't see people that look like you, it, it does make it hard. I mean, I think that's why the Carolina Peacemaker is so important is because you show, you demonstrate the possibilities of people from a range of professions, of lives, of backgrounds. And I was just thinking the importance of, you know, Omar going into medical school and someone being there to connect with people in ways that would be harder, say, to connect. Like we know that African-American patients will respond more positively to Black doctors and their health outcomes will be better because they're more likely to take the medicine that they're prescribed, for instance. I think it it definitely has to do with the fact that in the United States, or specifically from the kind of dominant European culture, being a settler colonial country, there isn't really a notion of community. It's very divided in this kind of uh, public-private sphere. And you see that with the doctors. You go to your doctor every once and now and then, and you don't really have a relationship. At least I don't have a relationship, really, with my physicians. I go, they say, um, my blood pressure is this, that, and the other. They say, I'm good for school. They give me my vaccinations. That's it. There's not really a relationship between me and the doctor. The doctor doesn't know me. They see this data, you know, from my past medical history. And then they, they make, you know, assumptions from that. They make conclusions from that. And then they take more data from myself. It's a kind of very mechanical process. 
it's not a holistic process of health. And, and that's something that, you know, when I become a doctor is that I want to focus very much on wellness, on health, and I'm building community. And that's why I want to be a family doctor is that, you know, I would like to deliver a baby and then, you know, from until they're 18, be their doctor, <laughs> you know, or when they're even older. That's also why this might be kind of a jump, but that's why you, you see, you know, something like the Carolina Peacemaker as building community, as a, a paper that because it speaks for the, the voiceless, it's very much focus on on this notion of community that I just don't feel that other newspapers really are. Since Omar, you know, that is your dream and that's your aspiration to do that. The medical profession, I was talking to my sister about this, who she's a psychiatrist in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was telling her, you know, I think the medical profession from top down, it kind of needs an overhaul because there's still only a trickle of people who are of uh, Latin descent or black people who are able to get in. It's like, I don't even know if it's 2%. It's not the same amount, number of people who could cover a population, who could treat a population of folks. We train physicians and then we, we have these residency programs that only allow four people a year into a dermatology program or two people a year in an ophthalmology program or, you know, a handful of people to be surgeons in a particular program. And there are only 50 programs throughout the country. I understand, you know, the cream of the crop and all that, but we have a population of people in the United States that are ill and need certain services. And not only do we need to change how we train physicians, but we need to change the mentality of our hospital system so that we are not just working on a system focused on sickness. We need to also flip that, which is what I learned in public health school at Emory. We need to work on a system of wellness, encourage people to be well encourage people to exercise, give them incentives to exercise, give them incentives to eat right and be healthy, give them incentives in their insurance costs. Like when they ask people, oh, uh, are you a smoker or a non-smoker? Well, if you say, yeah, you're a smoker, you know, you're going to get dinged on your insurance somewhere along the line. So you should have other ways to give people incentives to eat right. You know, oh, you lost five pounds. Oh, your blood pressure is now down. We have to change our paradigm in healthcare. Working on a system of sickness over time, it's not sustainable. We pay the highest amount of money in the United States per capita for healthcare. And you see what's happening right now with this pandemic because we're allowing politics and nut nuts to go over scientific inquiry and scientific study and what we know are the facts about what we're dealing with. I think that you are getting lots of amens from lots of us here. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, we really want to thank you both, Afrika and Omar, for this really interesting look at issues of health and uh, voice and community that we're talking about and that intersect the different areas that you're both involved in. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I, I think it's great. And all the best to you, Omar. I think you will make a terrific physician. Call me when you, you know, get to residency or graduate or get in. I want to know. Emory Eagle, I want to know how you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be in contact. It's been a wonderful show today. Loved listening to all of this. Thank you all. Thank you. Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including our production team, Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson. <laughs>